This is Experiencing Jesus with Bishop Marianne Buddy. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode in this podcast series, The Way of Love, Practices for a Jesus-Focused Life. My name is Marianne Buddy, and in these reflections, I'm exploring in depth seven spiritual practices that Presiding Bishop Michael Curry has invited all members of the Episcopal Church to adopt. Today's episode is dedicated to the fourth practice, to worship. But first, let's review where we've been so far. All seven of these practices for a Jesus-focused life are rooted in ancient disciplines that the earliest followers of Jesus adopted and passed down to future generations. Thus, the way of love invites us to experience in new ways the practices that have sustained Christians for centuries. And those practices are to turn, to learn, and to pray, to worship, to bless, and to go, finally, to rest. What does it mean exactly to adopt a rule of life? The term itself is simply religious language for something we all do whenever we decide to direct intentional, sustained effort toward an overarching goal in any area of life. And that's because the goal in a rule of life requires such sustained, disciplined effort. It can't be accomplished quickly. In an academic setting, for example, while it's possible to pass an exam by pulling an all-nighter, mastery of a given subject matter requires sustained study over time. In the realm of physical health, if we want to lose weight, it's not a rule of life to go on a starvation diet but rather to make small, daily changes in the ways we eat and exercise. And if we want to save money, we need to establish and then stick to a budget, which is nothing more than a financial rule of life. So a spiritual rule of life is comprised of specific practices that can help us pay attention to God and respond to God. The Christian writer Marcus Borg goes so far as to suggest that it is through our spiritual practices that we learn to love God. And that is the first goal of the way of love, for us to draw closer and to grow in our love for Jesus. And that is the first goal of the way of love, for us to grow in our love for Jesus as we experience his love for us. The second goal is to grow in our capacity to love others as he loves And the kind of love we're talking about isn't a feeling that washes over us. And the kind of love we're aiming for isn't a feeling that washes over us, as wonderful as that feeling of love can be. Rather, it is love as sustained and sometimes sacrificial effort. This is love, in the words of St. Paul, that is patient and kind. Love that is not arrogant or boastful or rude. Love that believes, hopes, and endures all things, a love that never ends. And we can only share that kind of love if we have known it ourselves, growing in our capacity both to receive and to offer that kind of love requires practice. The first three practices, which I explore in depth in earlier episodes, are personal, and they are the ones that help us draw closer to Jesus and know his love for us. They are daily practices meant to open our hearts and allow us to be filled by his spirit. And so every day we turn, 
we turn our thoughts and our hearts towards Jesus, even as we arise in the morning. And every day we are to learn by spending time reading and meditating on his life and teachings. Completing the disciplines of daily devotion, we pray. And while we can pray at all times and in all places, the way of love encourages us in a daily practice where we sit and we place before God our concerns, our burdens, and our joys, and then take time for silence, asking God to speak to our hearts. Practically speaking, the first three disciplines require about 15 to 20 minutes a day. At this stage in my life, early mornings are the optimal time for me to turn, learn, and pray. That wasn't as true when my children were young because mornings were devoted to their care. For other people, evenings are best. The time of day is less important than daily faithfulness. The amount of time we spend isn't as important as the steadiness of our commitment. And now we turn to the fourth practice, which is communal, to worship. While worship via technology has become a real and deeply impactful option, the kind of worship this practice encourages is with other people in a house of prayer. And specifically, my focus here is what lies at the center of a particular kind of Christian worship found in what are sometimes called sacramental churches. The word sacrament refers to rituals that are both symbols and mediators of a spiritual truth or a particular grace that only God can give. The primary Christian sacraments are first that of baptism, with which outward signs of water and oil symbolize God's unconditional love for us and our commitment to follow Jesus. The second, Eucharist, which is a Greek word for thanksgiving, is our name for the symbolic reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples before his death. In some traditions, this meal is referred to as Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. It symbolizes Jesus' sacrificial love for all humankind and his real presence with us, as he promised when he said, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And it is this practice of Eucharist that is at the heart of Christian worship. When we gather for Eucharist or Thanksgiving, we remember and reenact Jesus' last meal with his disciples. First, we recite the stories about it told in Scripture, hearing for ourselves the words that Jesus spoke so long ago, Take this bread and eat. It is my body given for you. Take this cup and drink. It is my blood poured out for you. And every time you eat the bread and drink from the cup, remember me. This spiritual practice of coming together to hear sacred stories and gather around his table is rooted in the Jewish Passover celebration, for it was a Seder meal that Jesus and his first disciples shared that night. But it didn't take long for a ritualized expression of that final meal to become the central focus of worship whenever Jesus' followers gathered together to pray, and it's easy to understand why. They felt his presence with them whenever they reenacted this meal. The most powerful and poignant story of the disciples' experience of his presence with them 
during the breaking of bread and the sharing of wine isn't of the Last Supper itself, but rather what happened to two of his disciples after Jesus was crucified. We find that story in the Gospel of Luke, and it's one we typically hear in church in the days after Easter, for it tells of what happened to these two on the first Easter morning, only they didn't know that it was Easter. As the story begins, two of the twelve set out on a road to a town called Emmaus, and they are still in the grief of Good Friday. Now it's been said that for those who follow Jesus, every road is a road to Emmaus. Listen to the story and see if you agree. Earlier in the day, the women among Jesus' disciples had gone to the tomb, and breathlessly they returned with accounts of angels and the tomb being empty, and amazingly, that Jesus was alive. Two of the men, we don't know which ones, couldn't make sense of what the women told them. And they did what many of us do, to paraphrase Yeats, when there's a fire in our heads. They went for a walk. The destination, unimportant. They just needed to get out of town. While they were on the road, Jesus appeared to them, and they don't recognize him. But he walked with them, listened to their grief, and gradually Jesus began to reveal himself to the two disciples, as he often does to us, through the stories of Scripture. But they still didn't realize who he was, yet their hearts were strangely warmed, and when evening came, they begged him, to stay with them. And finally, when they were at table and he took the bread and he blessed it, they recognized him at last. And then he disappeared from their sight. This not recognizing when we are in the presence of Jesus is the classic Christian experience. As I said, we're all on the road to somewhere. And he's with us. But most of the time, we don't recognize him because he's hidden in the people we meet, in the events of our lives and that of the world, and even within ourselves in ways that we don't always feel. But then, once a week, we show up in church and in community with others. We focus our attention on Jesus. We hear read aloud stories from his life and from his teachings. And someone takes the time, as Jesus did for the disciples on the road, to interpret the text for us, to bring them into conversation with what's happening in our lives and in the world. And sometimes, as that person is speaking, we hear his voice speaking. We feel his presence. As the worship experience continues, We gather around a table, recalling the table of his last supper with his disciples. We rehearse the story of that fateful meal, and then we take part in it, symbolically, sacramentally. Sometimes, when we do, for a moment, we feel his presence. We're told that once the disciples on the road to Emmaus recognized Jesus, that he disappeared from their sight, and I completely identify with that experience because my own moments of connection, my experiences of his presence, are often that brief 
and fleeting. Nor are they something I can evoke on command. None of us can. But when they come to us, when Jesus is real for us, in the words spoken, the prayers offered, the bread and wine shared among a community gathered, it's a powerful experience, enough to give us hope and courage, enough to assure us that we are loved. And he wants us to invite others to the table so that they, too, might experience his presence with them and his love for them. Sometimes we imagine that what we have to offer others in worship is, is ourselves. Now, our presence is important, and the authenticity of our welcome is critical. But the foundational gift that sets Christian community apart from any other gathering is that of Jesus' presence at the heart of our worship experience. That's the pearl of great price. And because we have these experiences together, in and through and among one another, we feel a particular bond to those gathered. It's the gift of Christian community. About 15 years ago, Marcus Borg published a book entitled The Heart of Christianity, Rediscovering a Life of Faith. It was one of those books that I gave to everyone I knew who was exploring what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, and it's often one that I return to for insight and inspiration. I picked it up again in preparation for this episode to see if it still spoke to me, and it does. And in particular, in a chapter on spiritual practice entitled The Heart of the Matter, Borg wrote something about communal worship that I've never forgotten. First, let me say that for Marcus Borg, as for our presiding bishop and for me, Christianity is most fruitfully experienced and understood less as a system of belief and more as a way of life. Or, in the words of another Christian writer, Anne Lamott, who wrote this by way of explanation as to why she made her nine-year-old son go to church, I want to give him what I have found in the world, which is to say a path and a little light to see by. You may know that the first followers of Jesus were known not as Christians, but as people of the way. All of this to say that our way, wherever we are and wherever we're going, is the road to Emmaus. Jesus is with us. We don't always recognize him, but when we gather together, he consistently reveals himself to us in scripture and when we share symbolically the bread and the wine. Now this way, Borg writes in the heart of Christianity, is comprised of practices that help us pay attention to God and be open to receive the presence of Jesus. Practices, he says, form our identity and shape our character. They hold us accountable, just as practices in other areas of our life do. And importantly, practices nourish us. They feed our souls. And on the subject of practices, Borg argues that the single most important one in his opinion, is to be part of a congregation that, in his words, nourishes you even as it stretches you. And he writes this bit of advice. Some of you are already involved in a church, but if you're not involved in any church, or if you're part of one that leaves you hungry 
and unsatisfied, find one that nourishes and deepens your Christian journey. Find one that makes your heart glad so that you wake up on Sunday morning with the anticipation of the psalmist. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Choosing a church isn't primarily about feeling good, but church is meant to nourish us, not to make us angry or leave us bored. If your church gives you a headache, it may be time to make a change. So if you're listening to this podcast in part because you're feeling the nudge to find a spiritual community, I urge you to take Bork's words to heart. Find one, large or small, regardless of faith tradition, that makes your heart glad so that you wake up on Sunday morning happy that today is the day for you to attend church. Now, I have to tell you that one of the times in my life when I, as a layperson, was free to choose a church, I made a list of all the qualities and attributes that I was looking for in my church home, and I went visiting churches. But the one I ultimately chose, or I should say chose me, didn't have any of the qualities and attributes I was looking for on my list. I simply knew that when I walked into that church, that I was home. You never know, really, what will call you to a community, what will beckon to you. But I simply encourage you to trust your instincts and your intuitions as you seek such a community for yourself. And if you're listening and are among those who are feeling exhausted, stressed, or empty in your church experience, while I would hope for the church's sake that you feel called to stay and make things better, better for your church and all who are a part of it, if that feels like too much of a burden for your own soul's sake, you might consider the possibility of finding a church that nourishes and inspires you. If you're listening and are among those like me that are leaders of a church, maybe it's time to honestly assess what I sometimes refer to as the joy quotient in our worship. How uplifting is our gathering? Are the people singing? How inspired are you? by those who stand to read from scripture and from those who are privileged to preach? What's it like when the community gathers around Jesus's table? You know, particularly with words that we repeat every week, I wonder what it takes for us to wholeheartedly engage them every time, as if for the first time, so that we're not reading as if from a phone book, but giving life to the words Jesus entrusted to us. And one final question, how would you rate your worship environment in terms of cleanliness and sense of welcome and comfort? What can we do to create an environment in which people can relax, feel at home, and be open to experience the loving presence of Jesus? In closing, let me offer a word of encouragement to anyone who is part of a worshiping community, but also feels the pull of other commitments that take you away from a weekly practice of gathering with others for worship. I understand. We live in a 24-7 world. Sunday is no longer a day of rest in our culture, if it ever was. I understand the pressures of work and relationships 
and for those raising children, the competing claims on very small windows of discretionary time. But hear me now. A weekly gathering with other Christians in a spiritually nourishing environment is really important. It's important for your well-being and for your growth in relationship to Jesus and his way of love. It's important, but rarely urgent. And so other claims will often feel as if they need to take precedent, and, and perhaps they do sometimes. But what is lost when a weekly rhythm of worship is lost is priceless. You may not even notice it at first, but over time, the absence of such spiritual sustenance, a sense of being with others in community, and the inspiration that comes from sustained exposure to Christian teaching and those encounters with Jesus that we can never quite predict but can sustain us for days on end when we experience in that, the absence of all these things will take its toll. It's not that you can't experience Jesus' love for you elsewhere. Of course, you can, we all can and do. But there is a particular grace, an abiding present known to us over time, in worship, that's worth the effort to be present for each week. What's more, there are times when our presence is needed for someone else's sake. In worship, as in other places, we are sometimes given the chance to be a living expression of God's love for another person, as others can be for us. And that's a powerful experience when we're aware of when it's happening. Truth be told, we're often unaware how our presence helps others feel Jesus' presence with and for them. It's only later sometimes when others tell us of our part in their sacred encounter do we realize the impact we have. And And we can be speechless when we hear it because we may not even remember what it was that we said or did. But the fact that we can be that for one another adds another dimension and added motivation to be present in worship even when it would be easier to stay home. Not only might we experience God in a profound way, we could very well play a small part in the answer to someone else's prayer. We may be there for them in an hour of great need. So may God bless each one of us as we walk our roads to Emmaus, where Jesus meets us, often without our recognizing him. And may we all experience those brief, powerful encounters as we gather in worship and he reveals himself to us in Scripture and the breaking of bread.